This evening we're going to look at Psalm 137, verses 7 through to 9, the last three verses of Psalm 137, praying for destruction. Let's just have a look at those verses. Remember, O Lord, the children of Edom in the day of Jerusalem, who said, raise it, raise it, even to the foundation thereof. O daughter of Babylon, who art to be destroyed? Happy shall he be that rewardeth thee, as thou hast served us. Happy shall he be that taketh and dasheth thy little ones against the stones. Last week we looked at verses 1 to 6 of Psalm 137 and those verses give details of the miserable plight of the Jewish nation that had been delivered by the Lord into Babylonian captivity. As the Lord said in Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 6 through to 11 and please listen very carefully to all of this important introductory material this Habakkuk, Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 6 through to 11 For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans that's the Babylonians that fierce and impetuous people who march throughout the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs they are dreaded and feared their justice and authority originate with themselves Their horses are swifter than leopards and keener than wolves in the evening. Their horsemen come galloping. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swooping down to devour. All of them come for violence. Their horde of faces moves forward. They collect captives like sand. They mock at kings and rulers are a laughing matter to them. They laugh at every fortress and heap up rubble to capture it. Then they will sweep through like the wind and pass on. But they will be held guilty, they whose strength is their God. Clearly the Babylonians were a particularly nasty people. They were cruel, they were merciless in their temper and disposition and they were bitter against the people of God. With that as our background information, what we are going to look at this evening is a prayer for the curse of God to be upon Edom and to be upon Babylon because of their treatment of the Jews. I'm guessing that verses 7 to 9 are not the kind of verses that will make you feel nice and fuzzy. And I'm also guessing that those verses are not likely to be found on any Christian calendar. Those verses are not likely to be found on a poster on a wall outside any mainstream Christian church. Anyway, coming to our text, we see again, let's read those verses yet again, verse 7 through to 9. Remember, O Lord, the children of Edom in the day of Jerusalem who said, raise it, raise it even to the foundation thereof. O daughter of Babylon, who art to be destroyed, happy shall he be that rewardeth thee, as thou hast served us. Happy shall he be that taketh and dasheth thy little ones against the stones, or against the rock. 
you can see straight away that the psalmist was not praying for God's blessings to be upon Edom and Babylon. That's for sure. Before having a closer look, I want to spend time considering with you this type of prayer, which is called an imprecatory prayer. In other words, it's a curse of God, a prayer for the curse of God to be upon a person or upon people. Imprecatory prayers can be found in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Don't just think of this as an Old Testament thing. In the Old Testament, the Psalms are full of imprecatory prayers. For example, uh, if you want to keep your finger in uh, Psalm 137 and follow with me, or just listen carefully, uh, Psalm 69 I'm just bringing to you a very small sample here. We could spend all evening going through all the imprecatory um, verses in the Psalms. But Psalm 69, let's just have a look at verse 4. It's a Psalm of David. Psalm 69 verse 4. They that hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of mine head. They that would destroy me, being mine enemies wrongfully, are mighty. Then I restored that which I took not away. And then let's look down at verses 23 to 28. Let their eyes be darkened that they see not, and make their loins continually to shake. Pour out thine indignation upon them. And let thy wrathful anger take hold of them. Let their habitation be desolate. And let none dwell in their tents. For they persecute him whom thou hast smitten. And they talk to the grief of those whom thou hast wounded. Add iniquity unto their iniquity. And let them not come into thy righteousness. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. And not be written with the righteous. Very, very strong words there in that uh, particular psalm. It's a psalm of David. He's the one that wrote it. Actually, actually, David was not without his enemies, that's for sure. Um, But also, it's a messianic psalm. You can see an immediate... um, In the immediate sense, it is a a prayer of David, but it's messianic. In other words, it's a prophecy about the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 4 describes the hatred of the Jews towards Jesus. Jesus as the Christ prays for the eyes of their understanding to be darkened, or rather David, he prays for the eyes of the uh, enemy to be darkened so that they will not see who he is. Uh, If you apply this to Jesus, they will not see who he is and they will not see the salvation that he brings. As for verse 25, let their habitation be desolate and let none dwell in their tents. That saw a fulfilment in 70 AD uh, when Jerusalem and its temple was destroyed by the Romans. Destroyed. Then there's Psalm 139. That's worth turning to as well. Turn to Psalm 139. Hopefully, most Bible-reading Christians 
will know something of Psalm 139. I've referred to it every time I've preached on um, a theme of pro-life, anti-abortion. There are verses in there that most Christians do know. Look at verses 13 and 14 in Psalm 139. For thou hast possessed my reins, thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvellous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. Well, Let's have a look at verse 15 there. My substance was not hid from thee when I was made in the secret, in secret and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Verse 16. Thine eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect. Again, those verses are often quoted as a, a very good proof, biblical proof, that we are much more than just a clump of cells when we are in our mother's wombs. And most of you will probably know those verses. But have you actually looked at verses 19 to 22 in that same psalm? Look at verses 19 to 22 there. Surely thou wilt slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, ye bloody men. For they speak against thee wickedly, and thine enemies take thy name in vain. Do not I hate them, O Lord, that hate thee, and am not I grieved with those that rise up against thee. I hate them with perfect hatred, I count them mine enemies. Perhaps not so familiar those verses, or maybe you've seen them and you've skipped over them. I don't know. Hang on a minute though. How do we reconcile that with the New Testament? Because the psalmist is David again, isn't it? He hates those who hates God, who hate God. Hates, there's a lot of hate there. How do we reconcile that with what Jesus says in the New Testament? That we are to love our enemies. That's what Jesus says, isn't it? Love your en- or, or love your neighbours yourself. Again, well, when Jesus said love your neighbour as yourself, he was quoting from the Old Testament. We need to realise that. Quoting from the Old Testament. And as for love your enemies... Jesus said that in Matthew's Gospel, the Sermon on the Mount. I like what Spurgeon said about that. Listen to this. To hate a man for his own sake or for any evil done to us would be wrong. We don't have scores to settle with people. If someone does you wrong in some way, you pray for them. You don't necessarily want to spend time with them. You don't necessarily want to uh, eat with them and pass the time with them, but you pray for them. You pray for their that they would repent, that they would um, receive Jesus for their salvation, but you're not vindictive towards them. There's none of that at all. And that would be wrong. But to hate a man because he is the foe of all goodness and the enemy of all righteousness is nothing more nor less than an obligation. The more we love God, the more indignant shall we grow with those who refuse him their affection. 
For that reason, the Apostle Paul was able to say, if anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, well, let him be accursed. You'll find that in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul saying, if anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. That's in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 22. And then there's Galatians chapter 8 verses, chapter 1 rather, verses 8 to 9, again, New Testament, where the apostle said, but even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. I hope that you can see that both the love of God and the curses of God in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. We don't have a God, one God for the Old Testament and another God for the New Testament. It's the same God. There is only one true God and he is revealed to us in both the Old and the New Testament. A God of love and a God of vengeance. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Let's be very clear about something. The greatest act of love that has ever taken place and is recorded for us in the Bible, is the incarnate Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, laying down his life for sinners at the cross. I would challenge anybody to to, to tell me of a greater show of love than Jesus Christ nailed to a cross for sinners. If you reject the Lord Jesus Christ, familiar theme isn't it I mentioned this this morning if you reject the Lord Jesus Christ the wrath of God is upon you and if you were to die in that unbelieving condition you would take your place as one who is cursed of God if you leave this world having rejected Jesus you leave the world cursed of God and you will go to outer darkness where the worm never dies and where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Coming now to Psalm 137, verse 7. It is written, Remember, O Lord, the children of Edom in the day of Jerusalem who said, Raise it, raise it, even to the foundation thereof. Rebecca, who was the wife of Abraham's son Isaac, she had twins. She had boys, two boys. The younger son Jacob become, became the father of the twelve tribes of Israel, whereas the Edomites were descendants of the older son Esau. Twelve tribes came from Jacob. The Edomites that we're reading of in verse 7, they came from Esau. When the Israelites were heading towards the promised land of Canaan, after their deliverance by God from slavery in Egypt, the king of Edom refused to allow them passage through his territory. 
even though Israel and Edom were related through Jacob and Esau, and you'd think that they'd be very close, there was none of that. The Edomites were nevertheless violent towards the Jews, and they did nothing to help them when the Babylonians conquered Jerusalem. We see that in verse 7, the Edomites saying, raise it, raise it, even to the foundation thereof. As the Lord said concerning Edom in Obadiah verse 10 and 11, for violence against your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off forever. In the day that you stood on the other side, in the day that strangers um, carried captive his forces, when foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, even you were one of them. The Edomites would be cut off forever for the way they treated the Jews. And they're not just called the Jews there, they're referred to as Jacob, as if to remind them that they had that close relationship, or they should have had that close relationship with the Jews. When you consider that the Lord, what the Lord said about Edom in the book of Obadiah, that they shall be cut off forever, can you see that when the psalmist said what he said, or in verse 7 here, in Psalm 137, Remember, O Lord, the children of Edom in the day of Jerusalem, not remember them and bless them abundantly. There's none of that. There's no sense of blessing the Edomites there. It's remembering them to God for their treatment of the Jews, the bad treatment of the Jews. So there's no sense of that blessing there. It was an imprecatory prayer and it was perfectly aligned to God's will for Edom. Their prayer was biblical. Obviously it's biblical because it's in the Bible. It's in Psalm 137 verse 7. That makes it biblical. But the the people who were praying that, they were praying in line with God's will for Edom. That they would be cut off forever. Also, can you see that those who do violence to the Lord's people bring upon themselves his curse? That's a fact. They bring upon themselves his curse. And why would that be? Because any attack on the Lord's people is an attack on himself. That can be seen to be the case in the New Testament when a man by the name of Saul, who was on his way to Damascus to persecute and to waste the Christians, and the Lord Jesus Christ met with Saul, the Lord met with him in a, in a light from heaven, and when that happened, Jesus said to Saul, 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 why persecutest thou me? Saul was graciously saved and he became the Apostle Paul. But the point that I want to emphasize is that the Lord considered Saul's persecution of the Christians as persecution against himself. Obviously, that is a very serious matter. Persecution 
against Christians, persecutions against the Lord's redeemed, is an attack on him. Let us now look at verse uh, at verses 8 and 9. O daughter of Babylon, who art to be destroyed? Happy shall he be that rewardeth thee as thou hast served us. Happy shall he be that taketh and dasheth thy little ones against the stones or against the rock. Unless I'm reading too much into those two verses, what the psalmist was praying for was nothing less than the annihilation of the Babylonian people, including their children, including their babies. That's how I read it. Again, that prayer was aligned to God's will for that wicked nation. Just listen to the prophecy of Isaiah. I'm going to turn to Isaiah chapter 13. Isaiah chapter 13, verse 19 through to 22. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldees, excellency shall be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. It shall never be inhabited neither shall it be dwelt in from generation to generation, neither shall the Arabian pitch tent there, neither shall the shepherds make their fold there. But wild beasts of the desert shall lie there, and their houses shall be full of doleful creatures, and owls shall dwell there, and satyrs shall dance there. And the wild beasts of the island shall cry in their desolate houses and dragons in their pleasant palaces. And her time is near to come and her days shall not be prolonged. Again, can you see how verses seven to, uh, sorry, how verses eight to nine in Psalm 137 were aligned to God's purpose, God's plan for Babylon. He was going to destroy the Babylonians. If you're struggling with this, maybe a little bit of modern day context will help you. I don't know if you remember, I don't know if you even saw the pictures of what uh, of Egyptian Christians lined up in orange jumpsuits, kneeling on the Tripoli seashore in Libya, Back in 2015. Do you remember those pictures on the television news? A lineup of 21 men in orange jumpsuits with their executioners, ISIS thugs, standing behind them with masks on their face and with knives in their hands. That has always haunted me. Not literally, but uh, I found it very, very unpleasant at the time. And that image is etched in my mind of those men. You could see some of them, actually, well, you could see some of them praying. So it's actually a video. Some of them were, were praying or, or speaking 
And I'm guessing that they were praying, praying to God. Who knows what they were saying at the time? I certainly don't know. But those ISIS thugs were standing behind them with their machetes in their hands. And all 21 of those captives were beheaded by their executioners. I'll be honest with you. When I think of all the violence and the, 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 the misery that ISIS has caused and continue to cause, especially to my brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, whoever and wherever those brothers and sisters may be, I'd have to say that if ISIS was encamped in one place instead of being spread out all over the place, if ISIS, all of ISIS was encamped in one place, I would probably hope and pray that a bomb would be dropped on it and every single one of them, every last man, every last man, woman and child would be destroyed. And that there would be an end of that savagery, an end of that misery, and an end of that persecution of Christians. That would be my hope, I guess, and my prayer. Again, to help you understand this, not only was Esau the forefather of the Edomites, he was also the forefather of the Amalekites. With regard to the Amalekites, they fought with the Jews in the Sinai wilderness even before Israel entered the promised land of Canaan. Even though they were distantly related to Israel. About 500 years later, when Saul was the first king of Israel, he received the following command from the Lord in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 2 and 3. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have, and do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. In other words, the Lord commanded King Saul to completely destroy the Amalekites, and even destroy their livestock. Saul failed to comply fully with that command and the kingdom of Israel was taken from him and given to David. As for the Amalekites, they continued to harass the Jews so much so that about 500 years later, at a time when the Jews were ruled by the Medes and the Persians after their Babylonian captivity, There was a man by the name of Haman who had been promoted by the king of Persia above everybody else. Sure enough, Haman was a descendant of Agag, King Agag. King Agag, uh, a descendant of Agag, King Agag. um, Saul had failed to destroy Agag when he was commanded to do so by the Lord. And, and Saul failed to destroy all of the Amalekites 
when he was instructed to do so 500 years earlier. Anyway, Haman, who was um, a descendant of Agag, an Amalekite, hatched a plan to destroy the Jews. And had that plan succeeded, there would have been no Messiah, effectively, had Haman destroyed the Jews as he wanted to do. No Messiah. However, in the providence of God, Haman's plot failed and he ended up hanging from the gallows that he'd had erected um, for the purpose of hanging a prominent Jew by the name of Mordecai. But can you see what happened there? All because 500 years earlier, King Saul disobeyed the commandment of God to destroy the Amalekites. They had grief. 500 years later, a man by the name of Haman, an Amalekite, had, uh, an important person, second only to the king of the Persians, he hatched a plan to destroy them. It's like a cancer that keeps on returning. Finally, we've been looking at a prayer of the ancient Jews for God's curse to be upon the Edomites, upon the Babylonians. But you know what? As was seen earlier in Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 11, the big sin of the Babylonians was what? It wasn't that they were violent and nasty and horrible people, though they were. Their big sin was that they did what they did in the strength of their God. Let me remind you what the Lord said in Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 11 about the Babylonians. But they will be held guilty, they whose strength is in their God. Who or what was the God of the Babylonians? Do you know, I, I couldn't even care what the name of that God is. I was going to research it, but then I thought, I'm not interested. I don't want to waste my time looking into false gods. Ultimately, whatever their God was, it was an, an idol. Okay? It was not the Lord. Their God was not the Lord. It was a false God made in accordance with their own sinful imaginations, their own sinful desires. So their God was um, was themselves, in a sense. It was an expression of themselves. Consequently, the strength of the Babylonians, whose strength is in their God, we read in Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 11. The strength of the Babylonians was in themselves and not in the Lord. And that is never a good thing when you consider the depravity of the human heart. We see that the God of the Babylonians is a wicked God. We see that the God of Isis is a wicked God. And what all of this should tell you is just how desperately wicked man is. Never mind the false gods. Man is desperately wicked. What, what do we have in the human heart? The heart that is desperately wicked. Pride, arrogance. Seeking to do everything in our own strength and for our glory. And we see an example of this in Daniel chapter 4. Verse 29 and 30. 
Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, proudly said, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honour of my majesty? This was the king of Babylon serving his God, doing what he did in the strength of his God. And he says, I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power for the honour of my majesty. The wicked king Nebuchadnezzar of those terrible, horrible people, the Babylonians. But you know what? That is the mentality of everyone who rejects the Lord Jesus Christ. Everybody. And their God is ultimately themselves. Never mind the Babylonians, never mind the Edomites, never mind the Amalekites. If you are not, if you have not bowed the knee to Jesus and received him, you are serving your God, yourself. The arrogance of anyone who goes through life in his or her own strength instead of in the strength of the Lord Jesus Christ can only ever end in judgment and damnation. That's very clearly taught in the New Testament. Surely it is infinitely better to have looked to God for mercy and to have trusted in his only begotten son, the Lord Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of all your sins. And by the grace of God to cast away your arrogance and to cast away your pride. To readily acknowledge that the foolishness of God is wiser than your wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than any strength that you possess. To be fully trusting in Jesus for your right standing before an almighty and infinitely wise God, not trusting in yourself. To have Jesus as your wisdom, as your righteousness, your sanctification, your redemption, your everything. And when you boast, Your boast is in your great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. May that be each one of us here. Amen.